Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. I want to talk about uh, something that absolutely encompasses everything, which is this grand pattern of creation. And that is how everything starts with oneness and then breaks down into parts and then reemerges as one again. And we'll go through different iterations of this, but you'll see that this is really the grand pattern of creation itself. And I want to start at the end of Sefer Breshis, where this pattern is hinted at in the last words that Yaakov Avinu gives to his children. And the Ishmael Rebbe says that hinted at in these words, or maybe more than hinted at, are actually the instructions of how to bring Mashiach. Yaakov says, and this is in verse uh, 40, uh, chapter 49, verse 1, in, in, in Breshis, in Genesis, if you want to look it up. It says, Then Yaakov called to his sons and said, Assemble yourselves, and I will tell you what will befall us in the end of days. So Yaakov Avinu's prophecy is taken away. He wants to give the time of the ultimate redemption, and he's not able to do so. But nonetheless, something very practical comes out of this. And this is what the Ishvitzer points to, which is the formula of how to bring Mashiach. In other words, perhaps the date remains a mystery, but the way to get to that eventuality is given to us by Yaakov. He says, assemble yourselves and I will tell you. In other words, when the Jewish people come together as one, that oneness will reverberate throughout all the heavens and the earth. But I want to go and approach this from a different angle right now, which is the greatness of assembling yourself. In other words, what does it mean to make yourself a coherent entity? What does it mean to combine body and soul in an organic way which reflects the oneness of God? We know that each one of ourselves is a miniature of all the cosmos. So, so when we fix ourselves, we fix the entire world. And this pattern reverberates throughout all of the heavens. And so, so I'm actually going to talk in a very wide-reaching way right now about the, the architecture of the heavens. God willing, we'll get to that. And really discuss life and death this world and the next, all of these different things that present, ourse- present themselves at this stage of creation in terms of the evolution and the unfolding of the, just the history of the world as dualities or multiplicities and to show how it all starts with oneness and it's all going to return to oneness. Okay, so with this in mind, let's focus in on the actual last moments of Yaakov Avinu's life, meaning to say his death. And I use the word death in heavy quotation marks right now because the Gomorrah famously says, Yaakov Avinu lomes, that Yaakov never died. And there are many interpretations of that. 
Perhaps the most famous or common drusha would be, he never died because the truth lives on. The truth that he imparted to the world lives on. So, so, so in that sense, he still lives. Okay, that's good. But what I came across was a commentary from Reb Kakon that wants to actually use the word death in the verb form. In other words, he actually never died. So, so we're going to zero in on, on the dying part of dying, not so much of the legacy that remains after one dies, but the actual transition from life or this world into the next. And what's interesting about the verse, and I'll, I'll, read, you, I'll read you the key word from the verse. If you want to look it up, this is now, again, at the end of Sefer Breshis, the book of Genesis, chapter 49, verse 33. It says that Yaakov, in the English, they use the word expired, igva, in Hebrew. In other words, it doesn't use the word die. So on the most literal level, since the verse says that Yaakov didn't die, rather, which would be the word mace, but uses this word that's translated as expired, you see that there is no evidence of Yaakov Avinu's death. Okay, so that's really on the most literal level, but let's try to figure out what that means exactly. So, death can be described in the following way. That the soul is taken out of the body. The soul moves from the body. And now, where you once had body and soul together, now the soul has departed and you just have just the body itself. And the body without the soul, we call that death. The brain is not functioning. The heart is not beating. That's what we call death. Okay, but the soul lives on. Now, death can occur in two ways, says the Gomorrah. And, and this is really fascinating. It can either happen like a thorn going through cotton or a hair being whisked from milk. And those are, I'll explain those two differences, two major, majorly different ways to leave this world. So a thorn being ripped through cotton, no one wants that. Believe me, trust me, we'll get into the explanation, but after I finish, you will agree, I do not want that end. Okay, what, what does that mean? And to explain that, we have to approach a new idea. And this idea is very important and, and very relevant to all of our lives. And perhaps surprising, I think, to most people. But when you hear it, I think that you'll agree to the, you, you'll understand the logic of it. Let's put it that way. And that is, believe it or not, it's possible to brainwash the soul by living a very physical, non-spiritual life. It's possible over the course of a lifetime to brainwash the soul into thinking it's part of your body. Isn't that interesting? You can, so to speak, physicalize your own soul by not recognizing that there are things beyond the material in this world and that those things aren't 
worth dedicating yourself to. And so the soul sort of isn't being used in its proper way and sort of assimilates into the body. And when that happens at the end of a person's lifetime, the body has to actually be ripped or rather the soul has to be actually ripped out of the body like a thorn going through cotton. That's the imagery that the sages give. Now that creates not just a, a painful death, but the steps right after the death become ex exceptionally painful. And let me explain to you what I mean. And I heard this explained by Rabbi Yisrael Reisman, one of the top rabbis uh, in the world today. And he explained that if someone leads a life like this, where they've, so to speak, brainwashed their soul into thinking that it's part of their bodies. In other words, that they haven't dedicated themselves to, to spiritual truths at all. That what happens is, after the soul leaves the body, the soul doesn't know where to go. The soul doesn't know what to do. The soul doesn't know to ascend. Because it's, it doesn't think like a soul anymore. It thinks like a body. And so now the soul is out of the body and it doesn't know what to do. And Rabbi Reisman described that as something exceedingly painful. Because you can imagine that your consciousness is now in that soul. And that soul is absolutely bewildered as to where it is or what its purpose is. So that's heavy. And the way that we avoid that is by, during the course of our lifetimes, treating our souls like they're souls. In other words, understanding that they have wings and that this is like the amazing piece of God that God puts inside of us and that we use it to elevate ourselves and all of, a re all of reality around us and to ascend with it. Okay. Now, what about the happy version? The happy version was like a hair being whisked through milk. Now, can you imagine you've got like a bowl of milk and you've got like a little hair floating there? And I think you're all familiar with the kitchen appliance, a whisk. It just like <laughs> goes right out of the milk. And, and that's a soul that knows it's a soul and is like, okay, it's soul time. Let's do this. And it's just right out of the milk because it knows what to do. It knows what it is. It knows what where to go, it, it's, it is like all, like, its bags are packed, so it is ready. So that's the other side of it. And I, I heard from Gedalia Gerfein right at one time that we have something called a death rattle, which is the sound a person makes when they leave this world. And he said that there are two types of death rattles. One is, and the other is, ah, so... What's the difference? The is, it's all true. And the ah is, it's all true. <laughs> so, so either way, the soul reaches the same conclusion. It's just how we live our life in this world will dictate how we feel about the ultimate truth that we encounter in the end.
And I think that this is just kind of like something that a lot of people don't think about, which is, I call this bad math, by the way. So what's bad math is when you say something that it sounds like it makes sense, or you think something like it seems logical, but the reality is it's not true or logical at all. So, so what do I mean by it? And I don't think people necessarily think this consciously. It's just they haven't really thought through it so much for the most part. Okay, so here's some bad math. People think that God exists to the extent that I believe he exists. So let's work this through for a moment. That means that if I really believe in God, then God really exists. And if someone says, well, I don't believe in God at all, well, then I guess God doesn't exist. But God exists whether you believe in him or not. That's the amazing thing. That's an aspect of God's love for the world, God's love for all of us, is that even as we actively deny his presence, actively deny it, he keeps those people alive. And he feeds them, and he pays their rent, and he gives them, you know, all sorts of nice things. That's an amazing thing. It's an, it's an amazing aspect of God, that there are people who are actively denying his existence, and he keeps them alive. He provides them. But here we see that God exists whether we believe in him or not. And it's not, he kind of exists if I believe in him a lot, he kind of doesn't exist. Now he exists a little bit less, because I don't believe in him so much today, that it's not a sliding scale. God's presence is an absolute. It's not contingent on us. Again, a lot of people don't think that through, but there you have it. Okay, so now let's get back to our question. What does it mean in the Pasuk, according to Rav Tzadok HaKain, when it says that Yaakov expired and doesn't use the word die? So, something very interesting. We talked about how we can define death as a person's soul being taken out of them, and then it leaves the body, and that's death. But Yaakov Avinu was so extraordinary that he was living an entirely spiritual life even as he inhabited a body, which means that he was basically outside of his body even as he was alive. So why does it use this special word expired? Vayigva, instead of the Hebrew word for mace, because the last step was him just removing this last little garment of physicality. And so, so the way he passed into the next world was so exceptional they had to use a completely different word to describe the process. Because he basically was already outside of his body. He was already a completely spiritual creature, but he wasn't having a body, so he just took off the last little garment of physicality. And so that's why he uses the word expired. Okay. So, so I promised you that we would discuss this grand idea of putting things together. I told you that in the end of days, everything is going to come together and the oneness of God is going to be revealed. 
And that's what Yaakov is telling his children. He says, I'm going to tell you when the end of days are coming. Gather together. So in other words, those weren't just instructions in the here and now, come close because I want to tell you something, but rather in a much deeper level, when we gather together, when we unify, then Mashiach comes. And there's such an there's such a expansive power to our unity that if we truly understood it, we would be running, we would be running to unite. Now, I was having a conversation with someone the other day. We were talking about, you know, people kind of finding their marriage partners and things like that. And, and, and we were talking about, you know, we were talking about within the religious Jewish world, how it takes place. And someone was mentioning, well, this person, you know, dresses this certain way according to certain religious standards, and this person doesn't dress, say, that exact same way. Now, we're talking about people who both keep kosher, both keep Shabbos, you know, both honor Torah and everything like that. But we're talking about these subtle differentiations in terms of the way they dress, say. And so one person was saying, no, it's never going to work. It's never going to work because this person is like this and that other person is like that. And I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And then the other person said to me fairly emphatically, this is the way it is. You have to recognize that this is just the way it is. And I said back, I said, this isn't the way it is. This is the reason why we're in exile. This is a condition of our exile. And then I privately spoke to one of the people who was part of this conversation. I said, if you met someone, say, at a social event, and they made you laugh, and you respected them, and they respected you, and they dressed in this particular way, which is not how you dress, you know, in terms of these religious standards. I said, would that really stop you from getting to know them better? Or, or maybe marrying them? And they said no. And I knew the answer was no. <laughs> so we talked about how Yaakov was really this amazing example, this model of being a completely unified being. Not just that, but Yaakov has this other name, Yisrael, Israel. So you see that just like Yaakov was unified, Israel, the Jewish people themselves, have to be unified. And that we have the ability to unify ourselves because we're modeled and named after Yaakov, who is able to completely integrate himself. And you see that in the name Yaakov as well. Yaakov is actually a name that exists in two parts. It's the letter Yud, which connects to the Yud of the Yudke Vavke, meaning to say the highest reaches of, of godliness, and in fact, we say that his, his image, so to speak, is carved on the Kisei Kavit, on the throne of glory. So, so Yaakov is, the sages say, the choice of the Avos, meaning to say that he's the culmination of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. So the Yud of Yaakov correlates with the Yud of the Yudke Vavke. 
And then the last letters of his name spell Akev, which means heel, which is the bottom. Meaning to say that his name itself paints this picture of someone who exists in the highest spiritual realms and is tied down all the way to the bottom of his feet. So here you see from heaven to earth, from soul to body, from top to bottom, all of that is contained within the name Yaakov. And not only that, but that Yaakov has this additional name, and we're going to explore that in a moment. Yisrael, which he's given later on, which correlates, says the Or HaChayim, with the Neshama Yaseira. So that's this extra additional level of soul that's coming down. And of course, we as a people are named after that ultimate version of Yaakov. Okay, so, so let's take a step back before we get into that, because Yaakov has the attribute of emes. The Navi says, the prophet says, titen emes liyakov, meaning give truth to Yaakov. So Yaakov correlates with this idea called truth. And truth, we know, is forever. How do we see it in the word itself? Because the word emes, emet, is aleph mem tuf, which is the first, the middle, and the last. In other words, it's a quality of truth that if something is true, it's true forever, but that truth itself is forever. In other words, something that's truthful is forever, and the concept of truth itself is forever. So Yaakov is this expression of foreverness because he's the culmination of the unification of all things the spiritual and the physical, this world and the next. So it's quite amazing, but let's go deeper. Because you see another aspect of Yaakov and his relationship to truth. You see, there are those people who are dead even while they're alive. And there are other people who are alive even when they're dead. And the Gomorrah makes that distinction. I'm quoting the Gomorrah right now. So I heard Reb Shlomo say something very intense. He said, who are the people who are alive in this world? And he said that there's a you above and a you below. And the people who are connected to the you above, if you are connected to that aspect of yourself, your higher self, to the you above, so that your you above is connected to the you below, then you're alive. And if you're walking around and you're breathing and you're playing tennis and, and golf at the country club, but the you below is not connected to the you above, then you're dead even while you're alive. Now, how do we see this in the word truth? And there's an amazing construct. The word truth, emet, is the letters aleph, mem, tuf. Now, aleph, we've talked about many times, represents God. Why? Because aleph is the first letter of the aleph base, of the Hebrew alphabet. 
So it is assigned the number one, numerically speaking, because it's the first letter. So as such, the oneness of the letter Aleph parallels the oneness of God. Okay, so Aleph stands for God. They're both one. Very good. And we also know that the letter Aleph is actually, if you break it down, the letter itself, it's composed of three letters, which is there's a Yud above, and then a diagonal Vav, and a U below, a Yud below. And if you take the numerical values of those three letters, Yud, Yud, and Vav, it adds up to 26, which is the number of Hashem's holiest name. Yud in Hey and Vav in Hey, the Yud Ke Vav Ke. So God's holiest name is also contained within the letter Aleph. So that's another amazing example of how Aleph stands for godliness. I'll give you a couple more examples. You see, we know that the Torah is black fire on white fire. You shouldn't think when you look at a Torah scroll that the white parchment that it's on is just paper, basically. But rather, the letters themselves, the black fire, stand for those aspects of the world which are revealed. And the background, the white fire, are the spiritual realms that are there that can't be perceived with the eye. But they're present. They're very much there. So... It's interesting that the Torah itself, which is a blueprint, that Zohar calls the Torah a blueprint of reality, that it begins with the letter Bez, which is the second letter of the Aleph base. It's a black fire letter Bez. But, you know, I was thinking about it deeply one time, and then I was very happy to find that this thought exists in the Bahir, which is like the Zohar. I thought to myself, you know, it's true that the Torah begins with a black fire letter Bez, but you know what precedes it? A white fire Aleph. Has to be. It has to be. Right? Because behind this world is the oneness of God. Has to be. So you see that the letter Aleph, again, represents Hashem. But let's go even deeper, right? Because the letter Aleph also represents the Torah. And the Zohar says that the Torah and Hashem are one, meaning to say that the Torah is, so to speak, Kaviyocho, the mind of God. So how do you see that? Well, we know that the Torah existed before the world was ever existed. The Gemara says that the, the Torah existed 974 generations before the world existed. So what does that mean? That means that the Torah is God's dreams and prayers for this world. Before he created the world itself, he had a plan for what he wanted to create. And that plan, that vision for the world, before there was a world, is the Torah. And when God reveals the Torah at Mount Sinai, he says the word Anochi. That's the very first word that he says, Anochi. And Anochi begins with the letter Aleph. Okay, so like the beginning of the beginning of the revelation of God's mind, so to speak, is the letter Aleph, the Aleph of Anochi. But now listen to this. What did God actually say at Mount Sinai? 
So there's a debate as to what God actually said at Mount Sinai. So the Gomorrah said, God said the first two commandments, the first two of the Ten Commandments. And remember, the entire Torah, all 613 mitzvahs are contained within the Ten Commandments. Okay. So, so God said the first two commandments. And there's a great gematria here from the Ger Rebbe. Now, Moshe says the rest of the commandments, right? So what's the gematria of the name Moshe? So Moshe is 345. 345. And what does the Gomorrah say? Hashem said the first two commandments. So God, so to speak, says one, two, and then Moshe takes over three, four, five. Three, four, five is the gematria of Moshe's name. So that's a, an amazing sequence there, which is really cool. But there are others who say that God actually just said the word anochi. He didn't even say the whole first two commandments. He just said, I am. And in saying the word, I am, all of the Torah was revealed in that word. Now, Reb Shlomo brings the Karmarno Rebbe, who was one of the most exalted Kabbalists, and he says the most far out thing. He said, you know what God said at Mount Sinai? He just pronounced the letter Aleph of Anochi. Now, the reason why that's so far out is because the letter Aleph is silent. So God pronounced this silent letter. How do you pronounce a silent letter? You can't pronounce a silent letter. But God pronounced the silent letter of Anochi, the Aleph, just the Aleph of Anochi. And contained within that was the entirety of the Torah. So here we see a lot of different examples that the letter Aleph not just stands for Hashem, right? Because the letters within Aleph add up to the yud ke vav plus it's the number one, so it stands for God. But that the letter Aleph also stands for the Torah. Because when God presented the Torah, he pronounced the letter Aleph, Anochi, the first word of the Ten Commandments. And so it's appropriate that the letter Aleph should simultaneously stand for God and for the Torah, because the Torah, so to speak, is the mind of God. So that correlation is very organic, very much to be expected. Okay, so now let's get back to this idea of truth. And remember, the Navi says, the prophet says, Titen Emet Liyakov, that we give that Yaakov, who's this Combination, right? Combination of body and soul, this world and the next, Yud and Akev, right? The highest and the lowest, all together. Yaakov correlates with truth. So now let's revisit this word truth. It's Aleph Memtes, Memtaf, rather. Aleph Memtaf. Well, if you take away the Aleph from the word truth, you're left with the Hebrew word for death. Isn't that amazing? Mem, tough, spells death. In other words, what did we say? Who are the people who are alive in this world? The people who are connected to their higher selves. If you connect yourself to the Aleph, if you connect yourself to truth, if you connect yourself to foreverness during your lifetime, 
then it's Aleph Mem Taf. Then you never die <laughs> because truth is forever. <laughs> so then that means that even when you're dead, you're alive. Because you're, you have completely absorbed yourself into the totality of actual reality. And if someone is not connected to the Aleph, if they're not connected to the oneness of God, if they're not connected to the Torah, right? Memtaf, that's death. Someone can be alive in this world, right? But they're not connected to truth. So even though they're alive, they're not connected to their higher self. You know, one of the most beautiful things in the Torah, you see just, I mean, the Torah is like, Every word is like this glimmering diamond. And there are certain sections where you have to put on sunglasses to block yourself from the, you know, you know, the laser beams of light coming out of the text. And one of those moments is by the Akeda, when Avram Avinu passes the greatest test that's ever been given to any individual in the history of the world, right? And right at that moment, when he passes the test, a voice from heaven calls out, Avraham, Avraham. So why is Avraham's name repeated? Avraham, Avraham. Because the Avraham below became one with the Avraham above. You know, it's like, it's, that's the highest. It's the highest. And you know what else? You get a Yaakov, Yaakov. That happens in the Torah too. You know what else? You get a Moshe. Moshe, what you don't get, though, is a Yitzchak, Yitzchak. That's never, that doesn't appear in the Torah. And one explanation that I heard, which I love, is that because Yitzchak was always Yitzchak, Yitzchak. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Okay, so again, we have this idea of connecting to the beyond. And now let's really go deeper. I want to talk to you about now about Shviras HaKelim. Shviras HaKelim was this massive event, like, you know, major disruptions. They call them events, right? They achieve that status. Well, this was the first event of creation. When God set about to create the world. Now, remember, What's happening when God is creating the universe? Basically, it's a moment where there's just going to be this transition. Now, remember, God saturates all of creation. And God simultaneously exists dimensions beyond creation. But there's going to be a moment where the infinite is going to invest itself into the finite. That is going to be the first making of the universe. And if you think about it, it's kind of logical that the finite, right? And we call that the shattering of the vessels, Shvira Sakelim. In other words, the finite point that Hashem originally invested an aspect of his infinity into couldn't hold the light. And so that first evidence of finiteness exploded. 
And we call that moment the shattering of the vessels. And that's the earliest moment, really, of the manifestation of the physicality of the universe. It couldn't hold the light. And as a result, all of these sparks descended. They all fell. And in terms of the Kabbalistic narrative of the um, redemption of the Geula, what we're doing is we're elevating those sparks that fell. Every time you say a brocha, every time you do a mitzvah, every time, you know, you do anything holy, there is this rectification of these fallen sparks that happen. You know, believe it or not, one of the 613 mitzvahs is not to go back to Egypt. And Kabbalistically speaking, one of the explanations of why we don't go back to Egypt is because all of the sparks have already been elevated in Egypt. So what do you need to go back for? The work has been done. That interesting? Because the text it says, the text itself says, the Torah itself says that when we left Egypt, we emptied it out. And on a Kabbalistic level, it's understood that what that means is that whatever sparks needed to be redeemed or elevated, that that job was already done. Okay. So God then does it again. And this time, instead of each of the vessels trying to hold the heavenly light of creation individually, this time, Rabbi Kaplan explains in Inner Space, which is a wonderful book, highly recommended if you're interested in these things. What happens is the vessels themselves join together and link together, and now they share the responsibility, if you will, of holding the light. And now, because they're doing it together, they're able to hold the light. Individually, didn't work. They shattered. But now, when they all link up and share resources, now they're able to hold the light. And now the universe actually proceeds. And, uh, and that happens. Okay. So, what I just told you, you can find in almost any book. But now I'm going to tell you some stuff that you can't find in books. <laughs> this is the stuff you have to learn a little bit more. You have to go into the, the, the books that aren't translated. Okay? And that's that there's this grand pattern of the rippling effect of Shvir Sakalim throughout pretty much every aspect of reality. And I'm going to give you a few examples right now. And you're going to see how this fits with the theme that we started with, that everything has to come together. That that's what basically the story of this world is creating unity. And that when we create unity, that basically what's happening is we're rectifying that very initial event of creation, which was the shattering of the vessels. Now, let me just say, just in case you're thinking of, you know, giant, outer space urns floating around. <laughs> there, there were no urns. <laughs> this is all the imagery when we say vessels is just so that we have something to wrap our minds around, okay? We're talking about all 
time-space constructs and things at the very initial origins of time and space and things like this. So, so, so there, there is no physicality imparted into this. So just understand when you hear imagery ascribed to these things, that it's only that you should have some small thing to, to hang your thoughts on so that you can try to grasp these thoughts. Okay, so, so let's put it in terms of the four worlds right now. And as I always like to explain, the four worlds are not four planets or something like that. We're just talking about creation itself. And the four worlds are stratifications of light. So the highest world is Atsilus. Atsilus is basically an aspect of the infinity of God. Okay, it's the highest. There is some sort of like articulation of some form of type of a parameter to it, which is why it's one of the four worlds, but it's so beyond that it's almost considered a separate category in and of itself because it's so infinite. And that's Atsilus. That's the highest, okay? Now, beneath that, you have Berea. And then beneath that, you have Yitzira. And each of these stratifications, or worlds as they're called, is a condensing of the light. And then finally on the bottom, the fourth world, you have Asiya, the world of action, where materiality becomes extant in the realist way. And God becomes, God's presence, while filling the entire world, even this lowest world that we inhabit, God saturates and fully fills this world, Nonetheless, God is the most hidden in this world. See, that's a, a, such an essential point that, that you just have to just carve into your heart, as Rip Shlomo would say, that God's hiddenness is completely consistent with God's presence. In other words, God is completely here, but he's very hidden. He's very concealed. But that doesn't mean he's less here. He's 10,000% everywhere and in everything, but just very hidden. And this is probably the biggest question that people have. Because they can't see him, they think he's not here. But these two things can work very organically together to be totally present and to be very hidden. And it's that's almost like a secret, basically. If you can really understand that, then you'll see and feel God everywhere throughout your life, and you'll realize that you're never alone. Because if God didn't absolutely saturate this plane of existence, then it wouldn't exist. The fact that it exists at all, the fact that we exist at all, is testimony to God's presence. Okay, so, so here's the point. When Shvirus HaKalim happened, when the shattering of the vessels happened, this topmost aspect of the worlds became separated from the bottom three worlds. Atsilus became separated from Berea, Yitzira, and Asiya. And so we have to make an effort to reattach to the highest source of light. What did I tell you earlier? in a much less esoteric 
much more conversational way. I said, who are the people who are alive in this world? The people who attach themselves to the you above. There's a you above and a you below. And the living people are the ones who attach themselves to the you above. Do you see how that now exists, not just in terms of one's individuality, but in terms of the cosmic structure itself? The you above would be at Silas. The you below would be the bottom three worlds. And how you are a microcosm of everything that's happening in the cosmos? So that act of searching for God, that act of attaching yourself, is the very act of healing all of the worlds. And we see this again in the word emes, right? The letter aleph correlates with the highest of the worlds. And mace are the worlds below. They're dead unless they attach to the source of all life. Okay. So I want to show you how this construct ripples through all of creation. On a very deep level, when we eat from the tree of knowledge, instead of eating from the tree of life, do you know what that was? Shvira Sakhalin. That was a shattering of the vessels. It was at that moment, you ready for this? That our minds became separated from our hearts. In this construct, our minds stand for atzilus, the highest dimensions of reality. And our hearts are that thinking, feeling aspect of us below. When we ate from the tree of knowledge, when we went against God, we separated our minds from our hearts. That's Shvira Sakalim. Do you understand? Now, let me tell you something. Just again, I'm learning, by the way, all of this that I'm telling you right now is from the Pischei Sharon, from Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver, who's one of our greatest Kabbalists, okay? Now, he explains this in a, with amazing imagery. He says that what happened was, do you know what an orla is? An orla is like a blockage. We have a blockage around our hearts. And God actually gives us a commandment, circumcise your hearts. Because that blockage, that orla around our hearts is creating a separation between our minds and our hearts. A man is also born with an orla. That's the piece of skin that's taken off at a circumcision or a bris. Now listen to this. When we ate from the tree of knowledge, the light that was pouring down from heaven into earth, all of a sudden we created an orla which blocked the light from coming from heaven down into earth. And now there's an impression of that initial light in this world. But there's this orla blocking the lower dimensions and the higher dimensions. Now listen to this. I heard this in the name of the Gera Rebbe. Do you know what happens at a bris when you cut the orla off of a man? At the same time that you cut the orla from the man, simultaneously, you are cutting 
a little hole in the orla above so that more heavenly light can come into the world. Do you know that Kabbalistically, an aspect of a man's soul enters into his body at the time of the bris? Now you have the most amazing picture. Listen to this. Because while you're cutting the orla off the little boy, you are creating a hole, right, in the orla blocking the heavenly light. So this ray of light comes down into the world and into the boy's body. <laughs> this aspect of soul comes from heaven and enters through that opening that you've just created in the boy into his soul. Isn't that amazing? Let me tell you another idea of reconnection and separation in Shvira Sakalim. Do you know everyone has a soulmate? Okay, it happens to be that some people are fortunate enough to, to connect with their soulmates, and, and some aren't, but everyone has a soulmate. So what happens when conception occurs or birth occurs? It says in heaven, this person is for that person. That's one soul. And then you come down in two different bodies. Do you know what that is? Shvirus HaKalim. <laughs> it's Shvirus HaKalim all over again. Do you see how this initial event of creation is rippling through all of creation? The separation between our minds and our hearts, between our soulmates, between heaven and earth. And now listen to this. The land of Israel, Eretz Yisrael, is Atzilus. It correlates with the highest aspect of all the worlds. And it too is cut off from the other nations of the world. That's also one of the ripple effects of Shvira Sakalim. And so Israel and the rest of the nations of the world have to get back together again. And in fact, what do we say is going to happen in the end of days? Like basically the Kedusha of Yerushalayim is going to spread through the entire world, right? Why? Because Israel is going to connect with the other nations. Because the lower worlds are going to connect with the upper worlds. Do you understand how this is all the same story? Just with different iterations, we're just plugging in different structures, but it's literally the same story over and over again. So, so we have to get together. We have to get together. We have to love each other. And we can't just say like when I mentioned before that, you know, when you're talking about Shaduchim, well, this one dresses this way and that one dresses that way. And that's just the way it is. No, that is just, no, that is what is keeping us in exile. That's what the way it is. It's the way it is now. It's not the way it's going to be. And to the extent that you don't allow it to apply to you, okay, maybe that you don't, you can marry someone who looks and dresses like you. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But not to block out other possibilities for just in a way that denies another person's humanity. Or you deny your own humanity, right? So when we come together, something very awesome happens. 
When you say hello to someone, something awesome happens because you're healing these rifts, which are cosmic rifts. I told you we would revisit what the Or Chaim says about Yaakov and Yisrael, this extra name. So this extra name was this extra higher dimension of reality that was put onto Yaakov Avinu. And so I had this idea one time, what if I took the name Yisrael, the Gematria, and subtracted the Gematria of Yaakov? In other words, what's being added by the name Yisrael? And you know what? If you subtract Yaakov from Yisrael, the Gematria is Mashiach, plus one. I don't know why that's not in every book. How can that not be in every single book? Believe me, I can't be the first person to have thought of that. <laughs> right? It's 359, and, and 358 is Mashiach. Imakola, right? So, so in other words, that unity, when that higher dimension comes down and it fuses together, which is what we're talking about, that's Mashiach. And now, I can't tell you all this without going over one more teaching because this is like one of these cash Torahs that if you can, it's a little bit, you know, there are a few steps here, but I'm telling you, I've gone over it a bunch of times in my head and it's not a complicated teaching. It's really worth listening to this a couple of times just so you can be able to rattle this off because it's so good. And it's a, the, the final end piece that I want to say about the power of unity, okay? When the Jewish people got to Mount Sinai, and this is from the Jikover Rebbe right now in the Imre Noah. When the Jewish people got to Mount Sinai, the Torah describes it this way. Vayichan sham Yisrael. Vayichan sham Yisrael. And Rashi points out, it's a very famous thing, that even though we're talking about approximately two and a half million people here, when it says the Jewish people encamped together, that it's in the singular. Now, by all rights, it should be in the plural. Why is it in the singular? Well, Rashi points out, because we were like one person with one heart. Isn't that beautiful? We were like one person with one heart. Now, that's really important, because it's not like God's just kind of describing the scene. It was a sunny day. We were like one person with one heart. <laughs> it's not like a, a descriptive like little detail that God is just kind of painting a picture here. No, it was a precondition of heaven coming down to earth. Our unity was a precondition. It created the vessel for heaven to come down to earth in. Do you understand? Very important. That's why I'm saying that Unity is like so beyond what it creates. Now all of a sudden, whew, heaven comes down to earth because we're all together. Now listen to this. This is what the, what the Jikover says. And Reb Shlomo, you'll see why in a moment, Reb Shlomo described the Jikover as a supercomputer before there were computers. So, Vayichan Sham Yisrael is the number 955, that phrase. What else is 955? All of the elements that create reality. Ish, which is fire. Ruach, 
which is air, Mayim, which is water, and Eretz, which is earth. The four fundamental aspects of reality, if you add up the Hebrew letters, comes to 955. Meaning to say, when the Jewish people come together, all of reality comes together. All of reality fuses itself into oneness. And now I didn't see this from the Imre Noam, but I'm adding this. You ready for this? There's something called in Gematria Mispar Kutten, which means you take a multi-digit number and boil it down to one digit. You ready for this? 951. Let's boil that down to one digit. 5 and 5 is 10, and 9 is 19. Okay? Now let's boil it down some more. 1 and 9 is 10. Okay? 1 and 0 is 1. <laughs> Do you hear? Vayichan sham Yisrael, Eish, Ruach, Mayim, Afar, everything becomes one. 955 is one, meaning that when we come together, the oneness of God becomes revealed. Okay, so let's just love each other and give each other a good eye and just connect to all the oneness that's out there. What follows now are some questions and answers. So the question is, why would God, if God is one before the world is created, why would God create this entire process, including the Shvir Sakalim, all the ripples effects of there being the illusion of multiple powers and all the brokenness that's in the world, only to make it one again? Like, why not save everybody the trouble and not make the world? So, so it says that God desired a dwelling place in the lower worlds. And these lower worlds didn't exist. And as we say that the, that everybody has the same question, which is if there's a God, why is the world so messed up? And the answer is because the world isn't finished yet. And this is our great privilege to live in this world while it's still broken because God created us to be partners with him in terms of finishing up the world. So, so the world is actually... See, I believe that fundamentally, philosophically, theologically, the mistake that everybody makes is thinking that God finished the world at the moment of creation and that we messed it up and we've been in the red, so to speak, this entire time and we're just trying to get back into the black. We're just trying to get back to zero. This entire history of the universe is just trying to get back to zero. And that's, what a horrible way to think of the world. What a horrible way to think of God. Something magnificent is being built right now. Something epic is being transacted right now. And God made us his partners in terms of transacting this finished world. You see, I heard in the name of the Vilna Gon, getting back to your question, why would God even go through this process at all? So, so we said one answer. I'm going to give you a, an, a, another version of the same answer, but using different, a different idea. 
that God desired a, a dwelling place in the lower worlds. Okay, that's fine. Here's another way of saying it. God in his perfection, listen carefully, God lacked lack. God lacked lack. Meaning to say that God is in, in, an, in his infinity had absolutely everything, but he didn't have brokenness. <laughs> because how did he have brokenness if he already has everything? How did he have the finite if he's already infinite? So he desired the finite, but we are now in the process of turning the finite into an aspect of the infinite, which is like awesome. This is something that never existed before in all the worlds. So this is just this amazing thing. So, so in other words, it's not that God is just going back to having what existed before this entire process took place. Very much not the case. Something new and amazing is being created right now. And we are participants in its creation. I think this explains a lot. So if the physical universe is so big, and that's just a tiny subset of all the spiritual worlds, and it's all created for man, and not just for man, for our ability to choose to do the right thing. Like, it, it seems like the tiniest subset of, of everything. So here's the imagery. Imagine a power plant. And, you know, some of these power plants, I think you've seen them, are like more than a city block squared. They're, they're very large with huge electrical towers and different warehouses on the property. And in one of them, there's a control panel. And on one of those control panels, there's a button. And that button says on and off. <laughs> now think about it in terms of real estate right now. How large is that button? What percentage is that button of the entire power plant? Really small, really small. And yet you see in the physical world how that parallels the objective reality of what we're talking about right now. That there is no contradiction between something being small, say in numbers, and yet ultimately impactful or even perhaps even the epicenter of everything. And, and that's the power of a mitzvah, by the way, because the mitzvah is at the epicenter of everything. You know, the word mitzvah itself, the commentators say something amazing. I think I first saw this from the Meoranayim, the Chernobyl Rebbe, but a lot of people bring it. The word mitzvah is mem tzadi vav he. And, you know, when you talk about the yud ke vav ke, the letters yud and he and vav and he, the letters yud and he are like, you should always think about it as a, like a ladder, right? So you have yud and then below that he and then below that vav and then below that he, which is this realm, the bottom he. So the lower letters vav and he stand for the more revealed dimensions, if you will. I mean, we're already getting into the heavenly dimensions with the letter Vav, but nonetheless, compared to the letters Yud and Hey, those are like really beyond and really up there. Okay. So, so the word Mitzvah, the bottom two letters of Mitzvah are Vav and Hey. 
like the last two letters of Hashem's name, Vav and He. Okay? Now listen to this. There's a system of understanding the Torah on a very deep level called Atbash. So you have to pay attention for a moment. What's Atbash? So Atbash is there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Now imagine putting them, breaking them down into two lines of 11 letters each. So you have one line, olive through, I think it's chaf, would be, yeah, olive through chaf, that's the first 11 letters. Now imagine you do a little horseshoe and under the chaf, you're going to put the letter lamed and you're going to continue with the next 11 letters, the next 10 letters, till the letter tough is under the letter aleph. Okay, so can you picture that? Two lines of letters, 11 letters each, because the Hebrew alphabet is 22 letters, and under the first letter is the last letter, under the aleph is the letter tough, that's the at of atbash, then the next letter is bez, under that you have the second to last letter, shin, there you have atbash, Okay, that's why it's called Atbash. Okay, so now people will take a Hebrew word and they'll wonder, what is the Atbash of that letter? So in, a, in other words, if you think of those two lines of 11 letters each, you can go down a letter and switch a letter to the letter below it, or you can go up a letter and switch it to the letter above it. Hopefully that's clear. So let's get back to our word mitzvah. Well, mitzvah, we already know that the last two letters are vav and he, corresponding with Hashem's name. So what's the atbash of mem and sadi, the first two letters of mitzvah? Guess what? Yud and he. <laughs> so the word mitzvah is this amazing conjuring of the yud ke vav ke. And why are the first two letters Atbashing, because the letters Yud and He are in such realms beyond ours that you got to Atbash to get to those places. So, so where does a mitzvah go? A mitzvah goes from our reality to dimensions and dimensions beyond and creates this unity. A mitzvah creates a unity in the Yud Ke Vav Ke. And remember, the yud ke vav ke, each one of those letters is corresponding to one of the four worlds. And so when you bring the name of Hashem closer together, you're bringing this highest realm of reality, in the physical reality anyway, even though it exists in the spiritual worlds, but still it's part of the physical construct we call the universe, closer together. In other words, you're healing that rift, you're healing the shvira sakalim. You're, here, you're healing the rift between the highest worlds and the lower three worlds, which is what we're talking about. And you do it every time you do a mitzvah. So in terms of Yaakov and Yisrael, that these two names come together and need to come together. So that's the, each one of us is an individual and each one of us is a, a member of this nation called Israel. Okay. So, so that means that we have two missions. Now, I heard Reb Shlomo say something, which was, it was a question that he was posing. It says in the Gomorrah that while you're in your mother's womb, an angel comes and teaches you the entire Torah. 
So he had a question, which is we know that every soul that was ever going to be Jewish, including the souls of converts, by the way, anyone who is ever going to become Jewish, were present at Mount Sinai. So if that's the case, everyone already heard the Torah. So here's Reb Shlomo's question. If everyone already heard the Torah, what do you have to learn it again in your mother's womb for? Very interesting question. So, so I'm relating this to the idea of Yaakov, which is each of us in our identity as an individual, and Yisrael, each one of us in our identity as a member of a nation. And what Reb Shlomo said was that every person has two missions. That at Mount Sinai, what we got was our national mission. But when you're in your mother's womb, you have to get taught the Torah because you have to learn what you yourself have to accomplish in this world, what your individual mission is in this. And I always thought that was very beautiful. And, you know, there's so many people who they, they think of community as a luxury or they think of community as like a bonus, whatever, like, oh, you know, I'll be a nice guy and go to this event or whatever it is. I'll donate blood or whatever it is, you know, but they, they don't really understand that a very core expression of their very being exists within the construct of the community itself. And that you can't be the fullest version of you unless you are linked and active in the community. Because you are simultaneously you and you are greater than you. And the manifestation of that aspect of you being greater than you is when you join together with a community. So, so it's not just a bonus thing or I'm being a nice guy by donating money to the community or something like that. No, this is, you need to, do, you can't be yourself unless you are doing this or the fullest version of yourself. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life and review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.